0: Theatre Center in Rochester, New York. This is Out of the Rehearsal Hall. It's the third season of the podcast, and we're back to celebrate courageous storytelling and our own power to make change and to shape a better world for us all. Our guests this season are artists, scholars, and curators of content from around the country, and right here in Rochester, the ancestral and occupied territory of the Onondaga, or as we say in English, the Seneca people. My name is Jenny Werner, and I'm Jeeva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Each episode, I'll be joined by a guest co-host from the Jeeva staff for an evocative conversation out of the rehearsal hall. Okay, everyone, please reset to run the quick change again. Peron Yusuf Sada, Jeeva's associate artistic director and director of engagement, joins me for this episode. Thanks for being here, Peron. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. Yeah. So full disclosure, this conversation that you're about to hear has already happened. (laughs) We've recorded our introduction out of sequence today. um, And also, spoiler alert, one of my dogs was sleeping at my feet during this interview. So you can probably hear her snoring if you listen hard enough. Um, One of the things that I love about what is about to happen is the way that Daniel Banks' work and his dedication to creating theater that inspires conversation and storytelling really connects with some of the work you've been doing Perón, this year in the Amplify series. Can you say something about what your goal was with that series and maybe a highlight or two for you?
1: You know, it's interesting because I was thinking a lot about the Amplify series during our conversation with Daniel, because I think a lot of the impulses originated from the same same place, the same goals. Um, you know, in this time of isolation, uh, I think it's really highlighted how much we need community and conversation and connection. And that's exactly what the Amplify series was um, was about um, in its conception Um Uh, in a virtual platform, of course, which is not ideal, but um, to give us an opportunity to um, uplift voices that have been um, ignored or marginalized, to um, grapple with the biggest questions of the human experience, and to give us a chance to also wrestle with um, issues that we're encountering and facing in this current sociopolitical moment. Um, it's hard to choose a favorite or two, um, because I I feel like I've learned so much from every conversation and I've been so inspired by all of our guests, um, but one that really does stay with me is the conversation we had on racialized trauma and healing in conjunction with Recognition Radio. Um, and that, was, uh, that featured Melanie Funches, Dr. April Aycock, Shawnee Wilson, and was moderated by Calvin Eaton. Um, and I found the guests all so clear and inspiring and candid. Um, and that conversation as a whole, I thought was a really impressive and exceptional call to action.
0: Absolutely. I agree. It was such a powerful conversation. And if people want to listen to any of these, where can they find them? They are all recorded
1: for your listening and viewing pleasure. You can go to jivatheater.org and click free events and engagement. And um, there, you can click the link there for all of the video replays. And they're also all on our YouTube channel. Awesome.
0: Well, without further ado, then, let's get into that conversation and introduce today's guest. Daniel Banks is a director, divisor, and dance dramaturg. He's worked in 36 states and 23 countries, including directing at the National Theater of Uganda, Belarusian National Drama Theater, Market Theater Lab in South Africa, Here Art Center, the John Houseman Theater, and DC Hip Hop Theater Festivals. He worked as a movement director and choreographer at Shakespeare in the Park, Theater for a New Audience, Singapore Rep, and La Monet Opera House.
1: Daniel is co-director of DNA Works, an arts and service organization dedicated to dialogue and healing through the arts, engaging the topics of representation, identity, and heritage. He is also associate director of Theater Without Borders and founder of the Hip Hop Theater Initiative. He is the 2020 recipient of TCG's Alan Schneider Director Award, editor of Say Word, voices from hip-hop theater, and co-editor of Casting a Movement, The Welcome Table Initiative.
0: And in three, two, one, you're gone. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: I was thinking the other day that, you know, we've known each other for a long time. I'm not going to say how long, but it's been a long time. Um, and I actually don't have any idea how you got into theater.
2: Wow. Um, I'm not sure I do either. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, well, my grandfather, my mother's father was very musical. And so, um, I think music was sort of my, my entry point into just the world. I mean, c- culturally, historically, religiously, like it was all music. That's my connection point. And so I always sang and I used to sing with him and, um, you know, he taught me just generations upon generations of songs and music and, you know, I'm getting very emotional thinking about it now. Cause, um, I feel like that, that's the eternal flame that's always kept me going is connection to music and culture.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, And because I was good at singing, I got put into musicals and things in school. So like, I remember playing the Mikado in fourth grade, which, you know, of course, could not and should not happen today. But that many years ago, (laughs) in Boston, uh, that was a thing. So, um, you know, I was in like the it was the fifth and sixth grade production and they cast me as the Mikado and um I was in uh I was Snoopy in you're a good man Charlie Brown and I was Grandpa Joe and Willie you know Charlie in the Chocolate Factory uh all in grade school mind you <laughs> <laughs> um, so but also my mom who was uh, a scientist uh when i mean in her heart and mind she did many things in life um but she had been a cherub at northwestern so that was back, i don't know if they still have it but their summer program uh their summer theater program they call them cherubs and so um so theater was partially her language too um And so uh, I just, it feels like it was always present. It was just Mm. something that I was always aware of. Um, And more and more, you know, more and more found it was something I was good at. It was something that I got positive reinforcement around um, from peers and teachers and whatnot. Um, Not something that was always respected by everybody or, you know, in my high school was definitely not it was much more of a sports high school, but it was, it was the thing that I did. It was like Daniel did theater. So really for as long as I can remember, it it, it was my thing. And it was, you know, like many, I think misunderstood youth. <laughs> it was uh, a safe place mostly uh, and a gathering place for other misunderstood youth, um, you know, or, uh, um, you know, folks who needed a creative outlet to respond to the, circumstances around them. Yes. And, and, and I always thought I was going to be a performer. I mean, I was sure I was going to be on Broadway. Let me tell you, that was, you know, I was going to be a Broadway musical star, which is wow. kind of crazy now because I don't think that I would ever want to have anything to do with any of the musicals that I liked as a child. Because of <laughs> course, somewhere along the way came some kind of sociopolitical awakening, uh-huh. especially after being told in college that I was too ethnic looking to be a, a commercial actor. And uh, by, yes, by uh, by one of the, the teachers at my school. And um, that led me into directing because, I, because my thought was, well, if no one's going to cast me, that means that no one's going to cast the people that I love and I'm spending time with. So I'm going to cast them and I'm going to be very strategic in how I cast them. And I'm going to cast them to tell the stories that aren't being told. And um, I remember after directing my first show at NYU and I was on a panel about non-traditional casting because I had cast, uh, The Cradle Rock with a multi-ethnic cast. And, um, and when I was asked my first question about it, I said, well, I have to let you know that I haven't done, this isn't non-traditional casting, what I've done, it's historically accurate casting. And for every role that you look at and say, this is non-traditional, I have a historical antecedent to prove, not only is it historical, but it's in fact, traditional. It's just, we've forgotten our traditions. Yeah. And I actually found uh, documentation that Blitzstein intended The Cradle Will Rock to be cast the way that I cast it. Um, and, and 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 it wasn't in its original production. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot I could. We could do a whole hour on on Mark and the Cradle Will Rock. But all of that to say that that um, that you know social circumstances guided and dictated innovation and uh, and really an aesthetic um, that everybody tries to make it be really political. And I just want to tell the truth. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and and my truth as someone who is quote unquote, ethnically ambiguous to so many people is there's a whole lot of us out here that are not living the stories that you see on the stage. And those stories need to be told. And if we're not telling them, then you're not actually learning literally how the other 50% of the country lives. Um, So yeah, so that's how I got into it and that's how things evolved. And frankly, that's where the real James Bond came from was uh, creating an ensemble in 2017 when a lot of artists were despondent and really not sure what they were gonna do after the previous election and wanting to create a space for people to share and support and connect and have a home and have a home base and uh chris was someone that we had worked with when he was a student at cal arts and then had brought on to several other projects and he traveled to serbia with us and you remember where else uh um hungary as well and um worked with us as, as an assistant on various projects and he you know became clear that he was family was thinking a a lot of the same thoughts that we were about theater and about the arts and about his his role in the arts and on one of our first ensemble calls he said i'm uh i'm creating this piece i'm writing it i'm developing it does anybody know of a theater that would produce it and at that point i don't think we had done any producing other than our own work internally adam and me um adam mckinney being co-director of dna works and um and i said well chris dna works will develop it and 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 that's then that's huge yeah and then we threw our hat over the wall he threw his hat over the wall with us and then i find that he's writing a piece that um basically asks a lot of the same questions and tells a lot of the same stories that that i had um experienced and faced uh in in my you know career whatever whatever career means in my experience in the arts and um yeah that's that's how we got here yeah
1: um as a quick side note, I have to say I too was in You're a your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I was I was I was Linus, but only for the first act, because they wanted to give all the all the all the students as many opportunities as possible. So we've come a long way, you and I. Um,
0: um, this, I think this is the problem because I've never been in you're a good man, Charlie Brown. So this is, this is my problem. I think.
1: You know, it's part of the ethnically ambiguous origin story. <laughs> there we go. Um, but I, you know, you, you spoke a bit about how the, the musicals you were drawn to as a, as a youth are, are not the ones that like draw you now or not the work that draws you now. But, um, and I'd love to hear, um, whose work you find inspirational and 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 who were some of those um, artists at those formative moments of mm. political awakening sure. um, that helped guide your, your vision?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. I always love this question. And again, I feel like we could spend many hours of me just talking about all the teachers that I've had. And by teachers, I don't necessarily mean people that I've sat in the same room with, but basically that I really feel that so much of my education has been um, through art and through um, the incredible work that I've, I've really been fortunate and blessed to see. Um, I will start off by saying, though, that I now know that what, what my heart is drawn to, both as an audience member and as a creator, is um, work that lives in multiple time zones. Hmm. Um, I never had a sense as a young person that i only lived in one time zone um i and whether that is because i grew up in an environment where there were between four and five languages being spoken on any given night um or knowing that half of my family lives halfway around the world um or knowing that there was this continual unraveling of stories of where my family came from um that you know over the years like every couple years it seemed like there was another place that we (laughs) learned we were from Um, or just a really strong sense I knew two of my great-grandmothers and um, and I think also because um, I and I knew a lot of my great-uncles and great-aunts and so from a young age there was also um, death happening within the family and transitions and, and yet their presences were so strong and they were so generous and made such an impact on me as a young person that I felt a strong connection to them even after death. And so any work that acknowledges this multiplicity of veils, you know, the thinness of the veils within um, life's experience Mm -hmm. uh, is work that I'm drawn to um, because it is, I would say for the most part, a universal truth that was not really discussed or talked about in my childhood. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: so I I have a strong embodied memory of the moments when I learned that I was not crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, where I was sitting in the theater, where a particular story was being told or a particular truth was being revealed or a particular style of storytelling um was happening. And I'll give you the first example was Ping Chong's Nasferatu, hmm. which was my first trip to La Mama. Hmm. And I remember the moment, the very first moment that Nasferatu enters the apartment and is living among the uh, the um the yuppie people in there. I don't know at that time, it was probably Soho apartment and is just living among them and they're not they don't see him but he he's in there and i just have this you know i can't remember half the things i said last week or did last week but you know there are these moments in my theater education where i was like oh you can actually physicalize what you're feeling <laughs> you know like this presence these presences and these histories that are that are more than just memories those can be physicalized and you can tell stories in that way and so that's what i mean by like a moment of truth like a revelatory moment of truth where i see something on stage that um is so profound and it doesn't even have to echo something in my life that i can tell that it's echoing something profoundly in someone else's life and um and those are just ripping and searing to me so you know ping's work was it was really I think one of the first pieces that I saw that I don't know that it blew my mind but it like blew open my heart it blew open my my desire to create in that way and then of course his work has has just grown and expanded into so many different um, so many different styles of storytelling. Um, I was very blessed when I had one of the TCG director fellowships a long time ago, um, TCG NEA director program grants um, to watch some of his puppetry work um, that he was doing and then um, to, to, to assist him on one of his undesirable elements pieces um, and just the, um, just the economy. Um especially in his in his undesirable elements work I mean, just the economy, the visual economy, and the the verbal economy is just is so powerful to me and so um so he's really somebody that gave me permission and courage at 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 numerous points in my journey um and I don't even know like if he's listening to this, I don't even know that I've ever said all of this to him too because I'm have such and respect for him. Um, I think also I was um, in my, you know, sort of college and post-college years, I was exposed to um, Jawale Jawolej Zolar's work with Urban Bushwomen. I was exposed to Pina Bausch's work. Um, I was invited by a brilliant, brilliant actor um, who was an actor at the American Repertory Theater, Ben Halley Jr., to come see him in Lincoln Center, at Lincoln Center and Death and the King's Horsemen. And I just remember sitting in the Lincoln Center's big, huge, vast theater that was turned into this African ritual space. And it, I mean, just blew my mind because it was like, yes, this is all the things that theater should be. Theater should be dance and theater should be music and theater should be ancestor worship and theater should be... And in fact, I don't know, you know, how we define theater will depend on this statement, but but performance and ritual have always been all of those things and, um, that, that just transported and carried me away. Um, I got to see some of Lev Dodin and Yuri Lubimov's work, uh, when i was in college and the like the, the physicality like down to their toes every word that they spoke every moment i mean some of it i even saw in russian and i don't speak any russian but could just feel every little bit of what was what story was being told and and there was there always seemed to be some kind of release of jubilation at some point that just felt so significant to me that the theater. I mean, sort of like the analog to Wole Shoyinka's work, like that the theater has to be a place for both rejoicing, rejuvenation, mourning, all of those things all at once. Um, And then, of course, my dear friends at um, Theater de Complicité and Annabelle Arden's direction and just her inventiveness of storytelling um, in an ensemble way um, uh, and Simon McBurney and that, that also just reached deep inside of me as somebody who was had also studied dance and did a lot of physical work i just um just just paved a path for me to think about other ways of storytelling and then artists like visual artists carrie Mae weems i remember picking up one of her books and 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 it, her her work has so influenced the way that i look at scenic design and this is before she was even doing design for the theater which she is now but this is Going back 20 plus years ago um uh lyle ashton harris's queer portraits um and then recently carrie james marshall's uh just portraits on an enormous scale with incredibly detailed and again that economy just that just the art of that detail i find so moving and so um inspiring and it makes me want to continue to tell stories i mean they're just Master storytellers in all, you know, in all um, media. There's a there's a, a visual artist who I recently discovered named um, Bailey Liu, who's a um, uh, or Liu, who's a um, uh, um, faculty at UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, and she's an installation artist. And I find myself being drawn more and more to um to work that has simplicity at its core it can be it can have a vast scale but it has a really kind of um elegant simplicity at its core um so i could name i mean that's like i've got a i've got a list but that's yeah, <laughs> yeah every, everybody does i mean i get i'm 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 uh, i'm uh, i'm easily i'm easily won over i'm easily infatuated <laughs> <laughs> so There's just. Fortunately, the world is filled with so many brilliant artists and um, and all of my collaborators. I mean, Marie Tree Garrett, Ken Norris, Christina Anderson, like they just, um, I'm going to sound totally corny now, but they light up my life. I just mm-hmm. love being in a room with brilliant, creative, heart-forward, uh, you know, artists.
0: Yeah. I, I I think that some of your answer... Explains what, something that I'm about to say, which is that I think of you as an artist who wears so many different hats. I, like somebody who defies definition, really. Um, you're a director, you're a scholar, um, you are a curator of dialogue and community conversation. Um, how do you describe the work that is most important to you?
1: Um...
2: I mean I'm gonna sound say something that again is just gonna sound super corny. So uh um but I'm 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 a I very think we're here person. for the corniness. I yeah, think we I'm love that so Yeah, I I do the work that chooses me. Yeah. Um if it doesn't if it doesn't grab me by the throat or by the heart or, you know, by the tripas or you know, some other I mean, I I, I don't there are other things I'd rather do. Like I would rather volunteer somewhere or do you know it's it really it has it it has to have a it has to have a spiritual purpose as part of it and and that's probably why it's so in some ways all over the place because um because i'm not making a kind of a conscious or an intellectual decision what to work on um or what to support because i've also in both visible and invisible ways you know supported many other artists as well um but it's because there's something in it that you know a story that needs to be told again I'm I'm repeating myself but a truth that needs to be called out a lesson in justice that we in justice not in injustice well or in injustice but a less you know a lesson about justice that we need to collectively experience i think also it's a little bit backwards, too, because I can't remember when I first felt the potential and the power of people sitting together in a room and coming together and breathing together. And it's only recently that the mechanical scientists have proven this thing called physiological synchrony, that heartbeats synchronize in when watching a performance. Yeah. So amazing. I mean... I think we've I think that ancient you know traditions has always known something about this because why do ritual if not for that moment of oneness uh, but but I think it is actually I mean it just blows my mind that that anybody thought to hook up machines to people to figure out that this is actually happening and that it does <laughs> and that it does happen um but I think that also Part of what grabs me is 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 this going to change is this going to is this going to create change? you know is this going to is this worth asking people to be synchronized on a physiological level with a hundred five hundred a thousand other people mm-hmm. They haven't done the experiment with a thousand other people, but I'll extrapolate. Let's say that it works there too. Um, but, so I think that that's what what draws me is the is the potential for understanding, for healing, for connectedness, for breaking down some barriers of isolation, some silos, some misperceptions, some biases, some untruths, some lies that have been entered into the cultural imaginary. Um, A dear friend of uh, Adam and mine, she actually married us, uh, Yavila McCoy, who runs a consulting business out of Boston, um, opens a lot of her talks by saying it is our job to create spaces for people to fall in love with one another.
1: Hmm.
2: And that, I think, accurately sums up what I've been trying to do for as long as I've been trying to do theater is to create spaces for people to deeply and irrevocably fall in love with one another.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Um, well, speaking of creating spaces, you founded DNA works in 2006. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners a bit about the company, about your mission, and also about the decision to start your own. Um, (laughs) which is no small feat and requires a lot of courage.
2: Thank you. Um, So uh, Adam McKinney and I met in 2004. One of our very first conversations was about... He was experiencing from more the professional dance side. He's worked with some pretty major world companies. Um, I was living in New York and directing mostly in New York and, and, and quite a bit internationally as well and teaching at NYU. And we just felt that at that moment, 2004, uh, we were always being asked to choose which one of our identities we wanted to be labeled as, or be known for. And what made that, especially problematic for me, and I think a little bit for him, is that people weren't always accurately or correctly guessing our identities. And so we were actually being called to identify in certain ways that didn't make sense given the families that we came from. Um, Maybe physically that's what we looked like, but that wasn't necessarily uh, a a cultural identity that we had grown up with. And, um, and And so... So he identifies as mixed heritage. I identify as having multiple heritages um, because quite a few of the heritages that I have on a genetic level were not those that were um that my family is was even aware of um and and we 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 wanted to create work that celebrated all of our heritages and that didn't dissect us or um pull us apart or put us under a microscope, but actually allowed us to be all the things that we are. And so needless to say, that was love at first sight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We um, very quickly began um, not only spending most of our time together, but also working together. And we also found that there was what, what felt quite natural for us coming from Uh, both of uh, both of our mothers were community organizers and community leaders and um, uh, and coming from that background it made perfect sense for us to co-lead but much to our surprise that really shocked and inspired people in a lot of the rooms that we were in and they had never experienced that kind of co-leading before whether it be in a workshop setting or an art creation setting um uh, or even an organizational setting and um that i think was an added element that not just what we were making work about but how we were making work immediately found an audience and we found a huge audience of people who on some level or other consider themselves or experience being mixed in terms of identity, not just ethnic or cultural or color, um, but also gender, sexuality, uh, language, um, regional class, uh, you name it. I mean, if we dig deep enough, most of us probably are mixed in some ways around something. And so um, what we found is that people were looking to be acknowledged for their complexity and not reduced to a box, you know, that needed to be checked. So that's, that's how we found it and why we found it. Um, We very quickly started being invited into some, some pretty sacred spaces and some pretty um, unique spaces. We did not go out looking for uh, communities that we thought needed us. We in fact have a, a bit of an internal rule that we won't go anywhere that we're not invited,
1: mm.
2: because we feel that it's important. Um, I would say, from you know, really from a Frarian perspective, Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, that we're working, you know, with people, not on behalf of or for, or you know, that it's really, um, and in and in fact, that's 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 how our. That's how our process of creating work has evolved. Is that we, specifically within the many communities that we belong to, we take the pro- we take a project to a community for you know to our our constituents, our stakeholders, our our partners, our colleagues, and brothers and sisters within certain cultural groups. And before we do anything, we ask them what they think of it. We really test it out. 100 200 300 conversations um, before we're sure that we have honed the idea and woven in the voices and the spirits and the 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 needs of the communities that we serve, you know, we often get asked Uh, When we go somewhere else or when people come to see our shows like how did you get I mean and you can probably hear some of the implication of this question like how did you get all of these people together in this room like I've never been in a room before that is seen you know and so there was a how did you get like we did something special to do that or there was some magic trick and my answer is we there was no we didn't get anything we belong to all of these communities and we are active in all of those communities and so as a result. We have a relationship and there's a sharing and they were part of actually creating the work or the idea or the ideas behind the work and we're constantly shaping and morphing things too with this piece this multiple site specific um piece that we created with a a augmented reality app called fort worth lynching tour honoring the memory of mr fred rouse up until the week before we started doing the tours we were incorporating new elements to make sure that we were serving the multiplicity of communities that would come through um as 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 safely and positively as possible throughout the tour we were getting between the december runs of the tour and the um the run that we just uh completed which was a six-week run we were getting feedback about things that we could do differently do better um, we 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 brought on more people to help lead the tour, um, to have more voices uh, telling the stories and to have um, Fort Worthian voices telling the story of this man's lynching in 1921. Um, so it's it's a it's a porous process. Um, we invited community members and community artists and national artists to contribute to the app, um, so that people were getting multiple perspectives and multiple connections to the various sites on the tour and um, multiple eyes and lenses through which to see the tour um, so that there were multiple entry points for people from different identity groups and backgrounds. Um, So yeah, I I think I think it all I always like to talk about um, both Adam's mother's table and my mother's table because it always seems like there are no less than as many people as you could possibly fit into the room at that table and there and somehow everyone got fed and everybody felt welcome and everybody felt loved and like this was the place they were supposed to be and I think we've um both had that experience growing up we have had that experience of one another's mothers um my, my mother's now deceased but um Adam got to know her and uh and I think that's just the That's how we view our lives and doing what we do.
1: Yeah. There's such an incredible sort of narrative through line from Daniel in undergrad being told what his future would be in this very reductive fashion, reducing your identity, to Daniel, the director, curator, community organizer, founder of DNA Works. Um, creating a space for complexity, mm-hmm. um, and conversation, which is something that you've, you've, um, sort of referenced a lot about like the, the amount of dialogue and the nature of that dialogue. And, um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about, um, about dialogue as part of your practice and, um, and your, your, both your process and the experience of one of your performances.
2: Sure, yeah, um happy to, so well, again, you know, I grew up around a kitchen slash dining room table where people were always telling stories, and mm-hmm. whether it was elders or community members or people from other countries that were coming through, and I think just and my my grandfather was a master storyteller, both through song and through through words. And um, actually, all of my grandparents had incredible stories to tell. Um, my uh, my father's father also was just a, a library of stories. So I think story was my first language, and um, in, in whatever actual you know spoken language was being spoken, it was it was story. And um, I was very fortunate to get to work with John O'Neill and and learn his. Um, his storytelling uh story circle tradition uh which had a deep impact on me and i've you know i've i've attempted to capture and teach um to people around the world um and um and very rigorously like i i really believe in the in the science behind how he structured that and and it's a beautiful beautiful structure um and I know that a lot of my devised work, just um, especially in the early days, I would walk into a room and people weren't really sure what devised theatre was. And so we would just sit in a circle and I would go around the circle and I would ask some very simple question, like, how are you doing today? (laughs) Or tell me about your life. Or why did you come to this project? And get these rich, elaborate, heartbreaking, um uh life-affirming stories I I remember one theater program that I did a piece with there was a last-minute cancellation and um and I stepped in and so there really had not been any time to prepare anything fortunately because these were third and fourth year students who had been together for a while and they went around the circle and the things that they revealed about themselves in that moment they had never revealed in three or four years to uh, their classmates and this was you know right I won't say in the middle of the AIDS epidemic but definitely not not in the place that we're in right now I mean this was 25 years ago and so there were stories involving that there were I mean just there was one young man whose family had had swum across I think it was the Danube to get out of Romania and escape. I mean, things they'd never heard from one another, things, some, you know, some of the things they had, but things that they hadn't. And so then they said, they turned to me and they said, what are we, so what's the show going to be about? Like, are we adapting our town? And I was like, no, we're doing your stories. Like we're taking your stories and we're physicalizing them. And we're, uh, and, and, and this is about you. This is about the richness of your life that you shouldn't at this particular moment need to funnel into another role. You you've got your own stories to tell and some of them swapped stories and some of them were told as an ensemble, as a chorus. I mean, it was just this beautiful process. Um, so, so it just, you know, there's always been this kind of, it's not even a tension, but there's been this duality, excuse me, of, um, of telling the story that's on the page, but also making sure that the, that the identities and stories that people are coming in with are also again, to use the term woven into the fabric of, of what we're doing. And then especially when Adam and I started doing work about identity and showing it to people, first of all, everybody wanted to talk afterwards and then people started telling their stories. And it was that same moment as with this group of these stories are just as important, if not more important than ours. And it seems like our story or whatever, you know, our piece, it was in this one particular piece, "Hamapa the Map, you know, Adam's story that we physicalized through dance and song and and text um, was such a, a, a catalyst or an igniter for other people to tell their stories. And so we... And and we found this out very early on. I mean, even like showing a section of it in a dance studio to a friend and then sitting there for an hour and listening to her outpour all of the intersecting moments. Um, and so we decided that that was really the purpose of the piece, mm-hmm. that the purpose of the piece was to unleash these stories, especially in audiences of people coming together from Black and Jewish and Native, which are Adam's identities, and other communities coming together in the same room um, and witnessing and learning about people who live in the same, I don't even want to use the community word because they weren't in the same community. They were in the same geographic area, but they had not yet come together in community. And this was, for many of them, and I'm I'm just quoting what people have said to us, this was the first time that they had come together in community with people who live next door to them or down the street from them. Mm -hmm. And we we immediately recognized how hungry people are to share their stories and how equally hungry people are to hear other people's stories. Um, And so the story circle became a fundamental practice that we would offer something, and that would be the call to the response that, that that would then come from the audience. So we don't do talk backs, we don't do Q and A's, we don't really entertain questions. It's where people want to go immediately, usually, and we'll 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 say we'll do you know come, we'll, we'll circle back at the end and take whatever questions you have at the end. And I would say most of the time people have no more questions by the end because why we decided to make a costume of a particular color is of such little importance after they've heard people's stories of whatever. I mean, I just remember after Hollow Roots by Christina Anderson and Albuquerque, which is uh, again a piece about identity, a piece about a light-skinned black woman questioning identity and, the, um, and and can identity ever be neutral? And it's just a beautiful, beautiful play that Christina wrote. Uh, a 14-year-old Navajo sheep herder stood, stood up in the audience and talked about how this play, he being male from the Diné Nation, how this play told his story. And it's just moments like that that just make the, the, sort of the walls fall away from the theater and y- you know you're in a sacred space. When In 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 Spain, when we did Hamapá the Map, a woman waited for us an hour after we had to clear out of the theater. It was a festival and it was the end of our run and told us that her entire life she'd been trying to get her mother to tell her her father's name and her mother had never told her who her father was. And... The young woman's father, and um, she held up her phone in the audience during the story circle and demanded that her mother give her her father's name, and in the story circle, while she was sitting in that audience alone, attending alone, she was given the name of her father.:
0: Oh my goodness!
2: And we have a story like this from every single time we've done a story circle. We've yeah. had people connect who realized that they were related. And they mm. were on the same college campus and didn't know that they were related until they heard the story that the other person told. Oh, wow. And, yeah.
0: That's intense.
2: But it's, it's, <laughs> that's, you know, story is medicine. In every Absolutely. land-based indigenous culture, story is medicine. And, and, and now story is product. Hmm. And people are paid lots of money to write new stories. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but but I think we've lost sight of the fact that people have to tell their own stories yeah. as medicine, not just for them, but for the listener.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: absolutely. So, and the story, you know, the, the, like how the map is, is 30 minutes long. And we would sometimes have story circles that would last an hour and a half because oh. people would not leave. <laughs> yeah. The theater was trying to get them to leave flicking the lights. people <laughs> would not leave because they found themselves in having an experience that they'd never had anywhere else before. Yeah.
0: That's incredible. That's, and it speaks so much to the power of story and the, you know, the ways that, that a, a play can or a, a performance can really, um, as you said, unleash um, stories in people. It's really incredible
2: um and I just want to clarify when I said people get paid a lot of money to write stories unfortunately not playwrights (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately that is very true (laughs) there are other people I should say not people writing plays but there are people out there who get paid a lot of money to write stories (laughs) (laughs) I
0: I want to shift us a little bit to talking about the real James Bond was Dominican for for a bit um and you know Christopher Rivas uh, was on an earlier episode of this podcast.
2: Oh, I heard. Um, heard.
0: (laughs) And uh, he talked just about how important the collaboration between Mm. the two of you was. And I wondered if you would talk about that process a little bit.
2: Yeah. Oh, sweet, Chris. Uh, Well, you know, I I was leading a hip-hop theater workshop at uh, CalArts when he was a student. And it was a great group of students. They actually really did some excellent work in that workshop but there were like two of them or three of them who just from the moment i walked in it was like i could just see in their eyes like they were just gobbling just Mm -hmm. gobbling it up voraciously and would try anything and go anywhere and do anything and chris was one of those students and um it just became you know and 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 on some level when he and adam and i you know stood together it just felt like family i mean he just felt like he was our younger cousin or sibling or something and Hmm. i I have this theory you know i was i was raised in the old testament tradition i'm raised jewish i am jewish and uh and and um i learned from an early age about the the 12 tribes because my name is daniel and daniel was not one of the tribes but dan was and people used to call me dan and it's like so i learned about the distinction between the two names and i just have this theory that we you know we all belong to a tribe that we were separated from and sent out into the diaspora and that they're just moments where you meet someone from your tribe. And you just know, it's just, you know, it's like that old TV show um, Highlander where someone walks in the room and that like, like, uh, what is it like a tingle goes up your spine and there's this magic sound and you
0: know, you just um, know, you
2: you just know that, you know, there's another immortal there. There's another member of your tribe there. And that was very much the way it was with Chris. And we've had just a beautiful collaboration with him as a company ever since then. And, you know, more than 10 years and, every place that we've traveled together, people have just loved him and he's inspired people and his work with youth is just out of this world. I mean, they just, you know, young people just gravitate to Chris, um, you know, as, as Adam's mother would say, what's not to love? <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, um, uh, and this, yeah, this was a beautiful process. He is such a trusting artist. I mean, he's very, It's not to say that he doesn't have strong ideas as well he should, but he's so collaborative. I mean, he really just understands give and take and collaboration and trying things and um, asking for things back or throwing things away. It's, it's, yeah, I, he's the consummate collaborator and this is just a, um, I feel, I feel that this work is very special. I feel that the story that he tells is still unfortunately timely and um, really reaches into people's hearts and minds. And it's, Um, again, it's one of those tales that the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes. And we've had Dominican audiences that have just connected so deeply, you know, know the names, know the history. And we've had audiences that didn't even know that the Dominican Republic was on the same island as Haiti, who, you know, who still connect to it because of elements of the, of the story and of the struggle and of the, the place that Chris gets to of it's not even confidence. I don't know that that's the word that I want to use, but it's a it's a it's a decision, right? The, the choice about how who to be and how to be it in one's life. That process of um, self actualization, mm-hmm. and um, and he's funny as heck and charming and you know an, a masterful storyteller, and so. Yeah yeah it's it this this one was easy yeah this one was yeah. easy you know and That's and so I like great. easy I like you know i'm I'm not drawn to conflict, so i like uh, I like uh, love stories with happy endings so <laughs> so uh yeah absolutely and, and I, I think again, I just think that there's a there is an inherent grace and charm about him that that audience members uh lean into. And so I'm really excited to see how your audiences and how the audiences that find this piece are, uh, receive it.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, you're, um, adapting it for this crazy circumstance that we find (laughs) ourselves in. Um, and so we're talking about this as, you know, it's going to be streamed nightly from our stage but it's also a digital performance, and I wonder how how you're thinking about, you know, what elements of that charm um, and that grace come through in a in a digital landscape. How do you, how what are you thinking? Is are the most important parts to really kind of keep alive so the audience experience it in a digital way?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about this because. As burned out as everybody is, with kind of um, these these endless anonymous Zoom calls or business-driven Zoom calls, um, you know, like the three of us right now, people can't see us, but uh, but we are very much centered in our boxes we're all of us kind of leaning in a little bit in this moment towards the camera. Um, I feel like I can almost touch you. Uh, Jenny, I'm thinking about how long we've known each other and like all the moments, like all the hugs. I can still feel your hugs, like the memory of your hugs on my skin, you know? And Perone, we're just this year, starting to get to know each other and working on a couple different projects together and just the joy of that newness and freshness. And um, and I think that there's a, a huge capacity for intimacy on this platform that we don't take, a, a, that in my experience, in the thousands of Zoom hours that I have now clocked, the majority of them have not been uh, taking advantage of the potential for intimacy. Mm. And so that is one thing that we're really focusing on this piece is that Chris is telling his story to you. Like you are the most important person, you know, you and your 500 boxes, like each one of you (laughs) is the most important person. Mm. Um, We are going to ask the audiences that volunteer to be on camera to keep their mics on so that he's not performing in a void, but that actually we can hear responses wow. and feel like we're in a space together.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, we'll see how that goes, but we're gonna try that at least for the first <laughs> few performances. I've done some test runs with some workshops that I've led. It actually does work, as long as nobody's got construction going on next door, or lives next to a hospital <laughs> or something. <laughs> Has a dog or something. Yeah, dogs are okay, you know, as long as Uh, um, Dogs have stories, too. And and I think that's really, I mean, that's our jumping off point. Our jumping off point is how do we do everything but the conference call? Mm -hmm. Or anything but the conference call or, you know, nothing related to the conference call. Like, how do we explore all the other dynamics within Zoom? Um, I'll give you another example zoom tends to operate on a two-dimensional plane right you're either close or you're far and for I uh for the the audio audience I'm like leaning into the camera leaning away from the camera but now I'm reaching to the camera with my arm but my body stays far away and suddenly there's depth notice how often in zoom calls people talk about backgrounds People talk about backgrounds because we're craving depth. We're craving depth of field. Hmm. Yeah. And we actually notice the background, but that's never part of our interaction. So it's a way to acknowledge. And I don't even know that people do it um consciously, but it's it is it's almost by nature that when people get on a call, they're like, you know, they talk about the painting that's hanging above my head or talk about the plant that's in the background or you know i noticed perone that you have a great trunk that we actually could have used for the show instead of ordering one from amazon last week <laughs> <laughs> um so so we also that's another example of we want to take advantage of depth of depth of field mm-hmm. and that's kind of multiple time zones mm-hmm. within this medium like there's multiple layers mm-hmm. um so yeah There'll be a lot of layering. There'll be a lot of um, feeling feeling Chris really opening up and sharing um, his experiences. Um, and then there'll be Wilson's beautiful music. I mean, that's another kind of twist is that we have a live musician on stage. And so uh, that, that adds a whole other element. Um, Wilson's a fundamental part of the piece. He has scored the whole piece, so the, his music goes through the piece. Mm-hmm. and um, and not only is he a brilliant musician, but he is also somebody with an enormous heart and just really plays from his heart. So um, yeah. Yeah.
1: So one final question for you. Okay, okay thanks. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we're, you know, we're at a pretty pivotal moment and maybe it always feels that way. But coming out of the pandemic, facing um, what at times feels like an irrevocable political divide and also um, uh, reckoning with systemic racism in a way that is new to some people in this country and not at all new to others. And how how do you see the path? forward and how theater plays a role in in us finding our way through all of these challenges it's an easy question
2: yeah yeah like i either want to answer it with one word or i want this to be another episode of the podcast um well, I'll just go back. To, I may I may answer it with questions rather than answers. I mean, I, I want to go back to the question of what is theater. So when you say what role does theater play, I, I, I want to say what kind of theater are we talking about? Because clearly ritual is never going to die. Ritual is as old as human beings, as the human species. So um, I think that You know, I teach in a in a master's in applied theater, um, and I and and to me, applied theater is about um, connecting people to their inherent creativity, no matter whether they're professional artists or not, and creating spaces for people to step into leadership, and. mirror on the outside of our organism what is happening on the inside of our organism which is constant reproduction of blood cells constant movement constant creation the creation is happening many millions of times per second Um, and so when that's stifled and people don't have the opportunity to to be creative out in the world or taught to think of themselves as not being creative or creativity is in some ways vilified. There's this violence that's done to to, to our system. And I tell my students, if you are creating spaces for people to be creative and express themselves, you will never be out of a job, because that's something that every human being needs. And how you do that, gosh, there's so many different ways to do that. But if that's at the essence of what you do, you will always be needed. Um, So I think that that kind of performance, that those moments where people come together can feel that they are not alone, where multiple perspectives can be held and listened to and not debated but just witnessed where there's no right or wrong even though we might individually personally feel like there's a right and a wrong but in a space where um as long as there's physical safety that things can be expressed and and people can everybody can be heard everybody not just one group Mm -hmm. um I think I think we need we need those spaces more than ever, because um, oftentimes oftentimes someone speaking something out loud is enough for them to realize that that's not what they really mean or feel, but it's just something that they've been taught to say,
1: mm.
2: or hearing someone else give a perspective that they've never heard before and feeling that vibration and feeling the visceral energy of that testimony is enough to get inside of somebody's bias or block or fiction and dismantle it from the inside. So we need spaces where where questions get asked and answers are not necessarily given, where people have to work the answers out for themselves. And I think that's the kind of work that we are seeing more of, we're going to see more of, we need more of. Um, I wonder if we even want to call theater an industry anymore, because I feel like there's so many different ways of doing it, that maybe we need better language, you know, better, Mm. better branding language, so that it's really clear what we're talking about. Because um, while, you know, it was really only ever my goal to be in plays or direct plays, Or musicals um, I feel an urgency to do something else right now
1: Mm. Mm
2: -hmm. and um, and so that's why DNA works is creating the work that we're creating is because that's the work that comes out of the need that we feel around us and what people are hungry for
0: that's It feels so important, that creation of a space where questions can be asked and not necessarily answered. Um, And uh, so critical to moving forward. Um, And I want to thank you for answering all of the questions that we asked you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like um, we could uh, have this conversation for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to thank you so much, Daniel, for being here on the podcast with us
2: thank you for the invitation i think this might be the first podcast i've ever done so what, what? Yeah, yeah.
0: oh my
1: gosh i'm so i feel so honored to
0: that's amazing well, you
2: were you were very gentle so it, it was easy and it was a clever, so. <laughs>
0: well
1: your stories are medicine sir so thank oh,
2: you thank you both really i love you both i love what you do and um uh, yes, we could have more podcasts, but we have the rest of our life to to continue these conversations together. So
0: that's right. Um, that's and, right.
2: And we have the next two weeks in Rochester. So that's right. Yay! <laughs> Thank you, and thanks to the audience that's listening to this. And please come see the real James Bond was Dominican and join us in our in our family family gathering.
0: Wardrobe. We have actors in thirty minutes. Thirty minutes. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. Special thanks to co-host Peron Yusuf Sada and to our guest, Daniel Banks. We also heard from wardrobe manager Karen Eckert.
1: Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and he and Casey McNamara edited our audio. There's more information about this whole conversation, including The Real James Bond Was Dominican, at jivatheatre.org and on Jiva's blog at jivajournal.wordpress.com.
0: If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform and share the podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening today and we'll see you next time we're out of the rehearsal hall.